back uh, together. So I want to say a couple of things uh, before we begin. First off, welcome to, uh, we've got a group here from uh, Dallas, North Richland Hills Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. Um, they were here with us uh, last year, uh, but I was not actually because that was the, that was the morning that we got the call that my dad was um, imminently dying. Um, and so I wasn't here when you served with us last year. Um, and uh, so thanks for being flexible last year um, at, the last, um, at the last minute. Uh, but we're excited to have you guys here with us today, helping us do uh, some outreach in the community, some community service. Um, also, just wanted to say, um, uh, as I was thinking about my dad's passing last year, I'm very grateful for all those of you who were here last year um, and invested uh, in my family and cared for us. Um, Tuesday is the one-year anniversary of my dad's uh, passing, and so I appreciate um, everything that you have done uh, to show love to my family. Uh, we have been gone uh, for 12 days uh, on vacation, uh, and uh, so we got back last night about um, 9 o'clock or so, and uh, we, are, we are grateful uh, to be back. We needed the time away. We needed to be refreshed and encouraged, uh, rejuvenated, uh, but uh, we missed you guys. And, uh, and we're glad to be back uh, to you. So thanks for coming out um, to Noah's Ark. I know not everybody was able to make it in the weather, but uh, we're grateful for those of you who, uh, who made the effort. Let's go to uh, page 1073. Page 1073 is James chapter 4. I don't know if the verses are on the screen, but even if they are, I'd encourage you to open up your Bible. Um, I think there's something special about looking at the printed text and engaging with God's word on your own. Um, I think that's, that's really important, and I'm afraid that um, we may lose that in the digital age. <clears throat> James chapter 4, we're continuing our series through the book of James called Show Me, because James is concerned with practice. He's concerned with making sure that what we do matches what we say, that how we live matches what we believe. And Christians are very good, usually, at uh, explaining what we believe. We have our doctrinal statements. Some people have creeds. We, we have all of these different uh, things that we can explain. But oftentimes, many of us struggle, and myself included, we struggle to live up to our lofty ideals. And James is all about showing the proof. He's saying, show me your faith by showing me your works. And that's the theme of the book of James, and it plays out in a million different ways. And here it's in a discussion of humility. So I want us to look at the first 12 verses, and this is what we'll cover today. James chapter 4, beginning at verse 1 on page 1073. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason? That the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely. But he gives greater grace. 
Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So I want us to begin by thinking about the last time that you were ill. The last time that you were sick, the last time that you had some pain in your body that you weren't sure where it was coming from. When we have a symptom, when we have a pain, we're not sure what's going on, we have a couple of different options. When you are experiencing some sort of problem and you're not sure what it is, you could either, what, what are your options? What could you do? Go to the doctor. What's another option? Ignore it, right? And those are the two that we, we usually end up vacillating between. We either ignore it, or we go to the doctor, or we ignore it until we can't ignore it anymore, and then we go to the doctor. Is that what most of us do? Okay. So symptoms are usually not the problem. Symptoms show us that something else is the problem. Okay. Like, my, my back might hurt when I'm laying down at night. But it might mean that I have a, a vertebrae problem or a hernia or something like that, right? So the symptom doesn't tell me much. It might, it might tell a, a trained professional something. They might be able to, to analyze it, and that's what they do. But for me, just a regular, regular guy on the street, like a symptom just shows me that there is something wrong. I don't know why, but there's something wrong. Now, many of us... We like to ignore our problems, hope that they're gone tomorrow or next week. But what James does is he shows us what we all instinctively know, that our symptoms are just that. They are symptoms of a far deeper problem. And when we're looking at spiritual symptoms in this passage, we really see that this passage shows us the cure for a diseased soul. Because... It's not, this passage is not talking about my back pain. It's talking about my soul. It's talking about the sickness of my soul. And James, he analyzes the symptoms. He's a good soul doctor here. He analyzes the symptoms of my heart and then he applies the gospel remedy to my soul. So let's walk with him as he does that. Verse 1. James says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? So what's the symptom in verse 1? What is the, what is the spiritual problem in verse 1? What would you say, Ronnie? Wars and fights. We are not getting along. We are squabbling. Now, the implication here, I think, is that this is going on within the church. This is the people of God 
arguing and bickering and not getting along. And James says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that are waging war within you? And then he connects it back to earlier in the book when he talks about our desires. In James chapter 1, he said, you desire and you do not have. You murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and you wage war. All of this, all of this conflict. Now, if you go to, uh, I'm, I'm not knocking going to a therapist or something like that, but, but if you go to a therapist, what they're going to do is they're probably going to try to treat the symptom. They're going to say, hey, look, you're, uh, you've got conflict. So here, squeeze this ball. Here's these stress relief techniques. Here's how to manage your anger. Your problem is you're just, you're not communicating well with your spouse. You've got to learn to communicate better, right? And so they treat it on a surface level. There's, there's symptoms. Let's see if we can, if we can manage the symptoms. It's like, it's like me saying, okay, my back hurts, so, so I'll just take more time off, right? After a while, it's not going to work anymore because all I'm trying to do is address the symptom, manage the symptom, and I'm not dealing with the actual problem. James says, I see the symptom. I see there's wars, there's fights, there's conflict, and here's what's going on. You're, you're, you're murdering and coveting, and you cannot obtain you're fighting and waging war. You do not have because you do not ask. You're wanting something you don't have. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Here's in these just these first three verses. He says we're at war with one another. We are covetous and selfish. We are obsessed with our own pleasure. These are the first three symptoms of the Christian's that James is writing to. When he, as their soul doctor, looks at their soul and analyzes their soul, he says, this is what I see. I see war, I see covetousness and selfishness, and I see an obsession with your own pleasure. This is what I see. And then he continues, and he really drops the hammer in verse four. He says, you adulterous people. How would you feel? If somebody looked at you and said, you're an adulterer. It would, it would probably shock you. And that's what, that's what uh, James is doing. He's turning into a shock jock here. He's trying, to, he's trying to get their attention. You adulterous people. And when he does that, he's trafficking in language from the Old Testament. And we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But he's, there was this Old Testament tradition. The Jewish people viewed themselves as in a marriage with God. And so the, the Old Testament prophets would frequently come to Israel and accuse Israel of committing adultery. Spiritual adultery, turning away from Yahweh, turning away from the God of Israel to all the gods and goddesses of the countries around them. James plays upon that imagery and he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? There's another, another symptom that James is analyzing here in verse 4. He's saying that we love the world, and so we don't love God. We love the world, and so we war against God. James is looking at, at a people who name the name of Jesus. They, they're, they're cool with singing the song, Jesus is the Lord. But when he looks at their lives, it seems that the culture around them is Lord. 
and that their lives are governed by the norms and the values and the expectations of the city that they live in instead of the city that is to come, the city of God. They love the world, and so they end up warring against God. Now, in, in war, and I have never been in combat. I don't know if any of you have been or been a part of the military. But in war, there is, it's very difficult to be neutral. Isn't it uh, Sweden? Or Sweden always tries to be neutral, and they have this uh, long heritage. Or is it Switzerland? I always get the two countries mixed up. Switzerland. Um, you know, and, and nobody likes someone who's neutral. Everybody wants you to take sides, right? Whether it's politics, whether it's two countries fighting, whether it's two sports teams. So uh, uh, most of you know that I'm an Alabama college football fan. I've never lived in Alabama, but my dad went to the University of Alabama, and so he, he trained me to love Alabama. And so in, our, in out the state of Alabama, everybody divides up between Alabama and Auburn. Those are the two teams in, in Alabama, and you, you're supposed to pick one. Uh, and so I give Florence a hard time because she, she's from Alabama and she hasn't picked one. I'm like, Florence, you can't do that. You can't be neutral. She says, well, I just want to get along with everybody. I'm like, you can't do that. That's not the way it works in sports, right? You can't get along with everybody. you got to pick. That's the, that's, the way, that's the way that we are wired. People don't like neutrality. People don't like it when you try to carve out a third space. James says, you adulterous people. Don't you know that when you love the world, you don't love God? In fact, when you love the world, you are at war with God. Don't worry. When you love the world, is this? Anyway, I'll keep talking. You can keep listening. When you love the world, you are not loving God. And in fact, the image is so strong that you are at war with God. So, I know that's distracting, but try to track with me here. So far, we've got four symptoms. We're at war with one another. We're covetous and selfish. We're obsessed with our own pleasure. And we love the world. And therefore, war against God. These are four symptoms that James sees in these first four verses. And he doesn't really like what he sees. He sees a people, yes, who name the name of Jesus, a people who profess that Jesus is Lord, but their lives are this. They're at war with one another. They're selfish. They're obsessed over their own pleasure. And they love the world more than God. And so he responds by saying that God is a jealous God. Look at verse 5. Again, he's, he's delving deeply into, a, into an image that was very common in Old Testament Israel. He says, or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? Now, um, the way that that is worded in the particular version that we are using, the Christian Standard Bible, uh, I don't think is, a, is the best way to read that verse. But when you, when you pick up different Bible versions, they will all translate it differently. And it's one of the most difficult verses to interpret and translate in the entire book of James. One of the reasons is, uh, in the Bible, it doesn't always capitalize. Uh, and, I, and I think most of you know, the New Testament was written in Greek. And in the original Greek manuscripts, it did not capitalize 
all of the words. So for instance, sometimes it might say spirit with a small s, and it's a reference to the spirit that is within us. Other times, in our English translations, it might say spirit with a capital S, and we know that that's a reference to whom? The Holy Spirit, right? Problem is, in Greek, it didn't capitalize like that, okay? So people had, people had to try to interpret based on the context and figure it out. So different translations of the Bible will translate this verse very differently, okay? So if you're looking at a different version other than the one we have out on the chair, um, you might actually read a, a translation that, that I think is a little bit better. Um, what the idea here, I believe, based on the context, based on the, on the best way of understanding this in the original languages, and, and it is controversial, um, but I think what it's saying is that God is a jealous God, and his spirit is longing for us. Why do I think that? Because in the previous verses, he's talking about this relationship of marriage that we have. He says that we are an adulterous people who have turned against our God. We are an adulterous people who are cheating on God, the one true God. And, and with our actions, we are worshiping the gods and the goddesses of our culture. Yeah, we may not be bowing down before some graven image. We, not, we may not be dancing around some totem pole and worshiping the spirits, but we are worshiping the gods and goddesses of our own creation. It might just be the man or the woman in a mirror. That might be what we are worshiping. But we are, because we are cheating on God, we are an adulterous people. And this, this marriage imagery here, this marriage illustration carries through into verse 5 where he talks about how his spirit, the Holy Spirit, is dwelling within us and longing for us. Because God is a jealous God. This is a this is an idea from the Old Testament. It says that God is a jealous God, therefore there should be no idolatry. God is a jealous God, therefore there should be no worship of false gods. And James here is saying, don't you see that when you are not living for Jesus, that is idolatry. And you are worshiping the false gods and goddesses that you say you don't believe. That's adultery. But don't you know that God is a jealous God? He's longing for you. He's longing for a relationship with you. That's what I think this verse is saying. So James, as our soul doctor, analyzes our symptoms, and he comes up in the first four verses with four symptoms. We're at war with one another. We're covetous and selfish. We're obsessed with our own pleasure, and we love the world, and so therefore we're at war with God. But in verse 5 and 6, he starts to provide... A diagnosis. Because it's no good if you go to the doctor and he's like, yep, you got a problem. Like, well, how do I fix it, right? I didn't come to the doctor simply to find out I have a problem. I come to the doctor to find out how I can fix it. James starts providing that diagnosis in verses 5 and 6. He gives us this hope in verse 5 that God is a jealous God who is longing for us. He's the jilted lover who's coming back and saying, hey, I know you've cheated on me. I know you've gone after the other gods and goddesses. I know you have deep idolatry in your life, but my spirit still longs for you. My spirit still longs for a relationship with you. So here's what you have to do. Here's how you, you get your feet back on the path 
to recovery, to wholeness, to healing for your soul? And the answer is in verse 6. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what James does is he looks at all of these symptoms, all of these symptoms, and then he drills down and he says, Here, so here's the problem. You want my diagnosis, professional soul doctor? That's what James is saying. The diagnosis is that you have not humbled yourself before. And God is resisting you. Now, um, anybody here ever tried to run through a wall? If you did, my kids do it. Uh, they, uh, they try anyway. When you do it, you encounter resistance. It hurts. And it never works. The idea of this verse is that God actively resists the proud. So you may be praying more than anybody has ever prayed to get an answer to a particular prayer that you are, you are desperate for. And you're like, God just seems to not be helping me. In fact, it seems like God is fighting me. According to this verse, maybe he is. Maybe he is resisting you. Maybe that wall that you're running up against is not the devil. Maybe it's God. Maybe he is resisting you. Maybe he is resisting me because we are proud. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So verse 5 says that God's spirit is longing for us. God's spirit is this jilted lover that is calling us back unto himself. And the solution is in verse 6. That instead of being proud and experiencing the resistance of the Holy Spirit, instead... We humble ourselves and we, we receive grace from the Holy Spirit. James said all of these problems, wars, selfishness, and covetousness, loving the world, it all, it all goes back to this one root idea of pride, specifically pride before God. You have not humbled yourself before God, and so he is humbling you through your sin. The symptoms, the diagnosis, and then I think verses 7 through 12 show us the treatment. When the doctor gives you your diagnosis, he's going he's gonna to say or she's going to say, here's what you need to do. When my dad was sick with cancer over a year ago, the doctor prescribed chemo. So we're going to do chemo for a few months and see if it works. James says, here's what you need to do. To humble yourself before God. Now, in the next five verses, there are, uh, at least by my count, seven different commands. Seven different things that he tells us to do. And I think all seven of them can be summed up in the idea of humbling ourselves before God. When we humble ourselves before God, this is what our life looks like. It looks like these seven things. Okay? So you could get lost in talking about all seven of these different things. I want to keep bringing it back to the fact that when we humble ourselves before God, this is what our life looks like. So seven things. 
Verse 7, therefore submit to God. Straightforward enough. Maybe hard to do, but straightforward. Submit to God. Acknowledge his lordship. Choose to obey. Resist the devil. That's the next idea. Resist the devil. Say no to his temptations in our lives. Say no when he's waging spiritual warfare against us. Pray against what he is doing in our lives and in our family and in our church and in our community and in our country and in our world. We resist the devil. Verse 8, we draw near to God. Because we've resisted the devil, and verse 7 says he flees from us. So then we draw near to God, and he draws near to you. So the picture is, you resist the devil, and he's running. You come to God, and he draws near. I don't know about you, but I'd much rather dwell in the presence of God than in the presence of the devil. So James puts these two together to say, resist one, humble yourself before the other, and you'll end up in the presence of God. Then he says, Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Going back to James chapter 1, he, uh, where he used that idea of being double-minded. It's, it's of a guy who's, who's got two, two, uh, two souls. He's trying to decide, I want to do this, and I want to do this. And he's torn. And you and I have experienced that, right? We want to do this, but we want to do this. I want to eat cake, and I want to eat pie. What do I do? You're double-minded, right? And we do it with serious things. Wanting to follow God and wanting to follow the world. Wanting to say that Jesus is Lord. Wanting to live the divine life. James said we're double-minded and because of that, we need to cleanse our hands. Purify our hearts. So in, in ancient Israel in the Old Testament, they had lots of um, ceremonies to become ceremonially clean in the presence of God. And James was writing in a time where the Jews were, were still doing that, and, and the temple was still uh, in, existent, in existence. It was destroyed in 70 AD, but most likely this book was written before that. And so, so the priests would go into the temple, and they would, they would wash their hands, and they had to follow all of these different rules to wash their hands and to make sure, because you had to be ceremonially clean to enter into the presence of God. And that's the imagery that James is, is using here. He says, cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleanse yourself spiritually as you enter into the presence of God. Because you've resisted the devil, so he's fleeing. Now you're drawing near to God. And as you draw near to God, make sure that your heart is clean, that your hands are clean. I think he's speaking to both what we do and what we think. You might say, well, my hands are clean. I haven't robbed anybody this week. I haven't committed adultery this week. I haven't murdered anybody this week. But what about our hearts? Have you been in a rage at somebody this week? Have you lusted this week? James says, our hands are a problem and our heart is a problem. So that's why we deal with both. We cleanse our hands and we purify our hearts. And then in verse 9, he says, be miserable and mourn and 
sounds. I know it sounds thrilling. Um, but he's calling us to mourn. He's calling us to repent over our sin. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Why? He wants us to take our sin seriously. Have you ever had somebody apologize to you? And you can tell that they weren't really serious about the apology. Like, you know, we try to teach our kids that the right way to apologize. And the right way to apologize is not, sorry. The right way to apologize is not, hey, um, I know, uh, brother, uh, I sinned against you. 75% of the sin was on you, but I apologize for my 25%. You ever had an apology go that like that? Um, that's, what, that's what we like to do. James says, here's what we do. When you see your sin before God, you see it as sin and you acknowledge it as sin. And so all of your laughter is turned to mourning. All of your joy is turned to gloom and you are miserable and mourning and not because there is no hope, but because we are really and truly and authentically dealing with our sin. We're not just glossing over it. We're saying that it's, it's real. And it really has offended a holy God. Then he says in verse 10, we humble ourselves before the Lord. Which is basically the idea of these entire five verses. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. At the beginning of this chapter, he talks about how we're warring against one another. People in the church are jockeying for position. They're vying for power. They're trying to be the, the kings and queens of the church. They're trying to be the lords of the church. James says, look, humble yourself before God and he's going to take care of you. He's going to exalt you. Like we get, he's, he's talking about the life of the church together, but I think we can apply this to other areas of life. You're at that cutthroat job in a doggy dog world, trying to get ahead, trying to get that promotion, trying to get that pay raise. Some of you are looking at me like I spent time with you this week, and I have no idea, but, but the reality is that this is what we face. And we have to humble ourselves before God. And when he does that, when we do that, when we humble ourselves before God, he exalts us. I don't, I don't exactly know what that means or what that looks like. But I know that he takes care of us and he lifts us up. Maybe it means you get the promotion or maybe it doesn't. The book that we're going to preach after we finish the book of James is the book of Job. Um, and it shows us that life doesn't always go the way that, that we think it should go. Um, but I do know that this verse says we humble ourselves before God and he will exalt us. Humble ourselves before God and he will exalt us. So the earlier image was of us running into a wall. God is the wall and he's resisting us. And this image is of God lifting us up and putting us on a pedestal. Which would you rather experience? The resistance of an almighty, omnipotent God? Or he lifting you up? exalting you because you have humbled yourself before him. Then in verse 11 is the final of these seven commands. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If 
you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Remember back in James chapter 1, we talked about being doers of the word and not hearers only. The Jewish people lived in an oral culture. They didn't all have copies of the Old Testament. They memorized huge books of the Bible. They would memorize Isaiah and memorize Exodus and memorize all of these things. And they would, they would recite it out loud. So they were hearers of the word. But James says, that's not good enough. You must also do it. And he said, if you are a critic, if you're a critic specifically of your brothers and sisters, you are defaming and judging other believers, you're not really a doer of the law. You have set yourself up as a judge. He calls us to be people who are doers. We're not to criticize one another. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that we don't call out sin. There's a place for that in the house of God, and that's why community is so important. One of the reasons why community is so important is because we need to speak truth into one another's lives and help one another out because we will all, if left to ourselves, drive off a cliff. But God puts us in one another's lives to help us. So this verse is not talking about not helping one another to grow spiritually or not challenging each other with truth, but it is saying that we are not to be critics. So if I start talking to Sandra about Emily, I'm violating this verse. If I start talking to Sean about Rachel, that might be weird because we're engaged, but anyway, <laughs> it would be violating this verse. We are, we are really good at criticizing. We are really good at tearing one another down. We're really good at spotting one another's faults. How good are we at building one another up? If you see a fault that somebody else has, instead of criticizing them or criticizing them and talking about them with somebody else, go to them. Help them in love. That is what we are for. So James rounds this out by saying there is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? James would look at us today and say, we have no right to judge one another because there is only one judge. And our sin has been judged at the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is before that old, rugged, blood-stained cross that all of us are to bow. Because humility before God means that we're, we all end up the same. We all end up the same. So we've got these symptoms, these problems in our lives that James analyzes. He spots the sickness in our soul. We're fighting. We're loving the world. We're coveting. We're selfish. We're committing spiritual adultery. And so James sees those symptoms and he probes deeper. He doesn't just teach us how to, how to manage our stress and how to, how to deal with our anger. Instead, what he does is he dives off the deep end into our soul. And he says, the problem is that you have not humbled yourself before God. So the solution is to humble yourself before God. These seven different things would be great to memorize. I'd encourage you to, to these five verses, verses 7 through 12 is to try to read them every day this week. 
And remember that these seven commands, this is what the humble life looks like. This is what a life that is humble before God will produce. It will produce these seven things. So I want to go back to my original question. I talked about symptoms. You know, if, uh, if I'm sick, usually there's some sort of sign first, some symptom. Usually if I get a cold the day before, my throat's a little scratchy. My nose starts running. I don't know for sure I have a cold till like a day or two later. But usually, there's some symptom that will kind of start popping up a day or two before. And it manifests itself later. Our sin, these surface level things, they are symptoms. And they pop up. And eventually, they flourish in our lives and produce full out sin has the potential to wreck our lives, wreck our relationships, wreck our church. What James does is he calls us to see those symptoms as signs of grace. You see, if, uh, if I have a problem, a serious problem, and I start having a pain somewhere, and I go to the doctor, that's actually a good thing. Because the doctor has been able to diagnose it and to fix it. My symptom of pain, that's not the problem. The problem is the underlying cause. So that pain is actually God's grace to me to send me to the doctor. To send me for healing. To send me for wholeness. These symptoms that we have are warning signs of God's grace. He is graciously, as verse 5 says, calling us to repent. He is that jilted lover calling us back, wooing us. He's giving us a chance to repent and change because there is always hope. Because Jesus, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to offer us new life. And it's that new life that we can walk in and enjoy now. So if you're experiencing these symptoms, you're having some spiritual issues in your life. I want you and I want me to view these symptoms as signs of God's grace. That he has called. And it means that he has not left us alone. He's not said, okay, I'm just going to let them drive off the cliff. No, instead, he's calling us back. And that's what he always does. He always, always, always calls us back. But the choice before us when we hear his call is to humble ourselves before God or to resist him and crash into the wall. I want us to humble ourselves before God. I want to humble myself before God because that is the only healthy treatment for our sin-sick souls.